Well, there's a phrase that comes oh so naturally from the mouths of these once, I cannot wait for summer, confessors. What's the phrase? I'm bored. I'm bored. To which good parents respond by talking about how good it is for you to be bored or how they don't have the luxury to be bored. But don't we all know something about the transition from anticipation to growing bored? Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, I think we're all aware of this concept of boredom. Uh, For most adults, it has very little to do with, I don't have much to do. In fact, most adults face the daily reality that there's always more to do in a day than we can actually accomplish in a day. And so boredom doesn't take the form and the shape of, I'm out of things to do. Boredom oftentimes takes the shape and form of, I'm at a loss of joy and wonder at doing the things that I'm doing. Boredom really is about disinterest. It's about finding things uninteresting. Boredom is not the opposite of busy. It's the opposite of interest. And here's the truth this morning is perhaps you've shown up and you find yourself bored with life, bored with certain aspects of your life. God in great kindness, and, and, and I mean this, in great mercy, God is allowing you to learn something about yourself through the ways in which you are growing bored. Your boredom with life is telling you something about yourself. It's telling you that you've momentarily lost sight of or confidence in what it is that really satisfies you. And so whatever it is in your life that's making that dashboard light go off, showing you that something is wrong because you're bored, I believe that dashboard light is an invitation for you to find the joy and the satisfaction and the happiness that you long for, not in broken cisterns of new rhythms new toys, new relationships, but really to find that purpose and joy and satisfaction and happiness in the true fountain of God's provision of His Son, Jesus. And so as we open our Bibles this morning to consider grace, a grace that is greater even than our apathy, will be served by being honest with ourselves. So, what is it that you're apathetic about? Like, where do you find boredom popping up in your life today? What are the things that you're growing disinterested in? Well, we can all laugh about kids growing bored with summer, but I wonder if you think growing bored with the things of God is a laughing matter. I wonder if you have grown sadly too comfortable with a growing disinterest in the things of God. The last two weeks, we've considered God's grace as the cure for our anxiety and as the cure for our anger. And this morning, we're going to find that that same grace is what apathetic people need as well. You see, anger and anxiety are problems for us because we either care too much about things that we shouldn't, or we care care too highly for something that's even good, but apathy is not caring enough. And so if I were to ask you, what are the top five struggles in your life today? I'm not sure apathy would make its way on your list. 
And yet I'm convinced that it's one of the biggest struggles of Christians today. Growing sense of disinterest in the things of God. I mean, how many times have you sat with someone who's a follower of Jesus, and in the course of conversation, you've either had to confess or you've heard someone else confess the fact that, like, I'm just at best average in my desire for the things of God. And for that to to somehow persist, that somehow we've become comfortable being lukewarm. Well, this is something that Jesus addresses in his church. It's what we see in Revelation chapter 3. And so as we prepare to jump into Revelation 3, let's pray as we consider what Jesus would say to apathetic people. Our holy God, we come to you and we confess that this passage is not merely a passage for those in Laodicea. Lord, this passage is also about us. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear. God, you have worked in your people to make us a people who are zealous for good works. That we would be fervent in what you've called us to do and to be. And so I pray that you would help us see our problem this morning. But more than seeing our problem, I pray that your solution to our problem would overwhelm us, that we would see the glories and the majesty and the beauty of Jesus. And in seeing him, we would find our heart growing strangely warm. We would find that the apathy and the boredom and the disinterest would begin to to melt off of our hearts. And so for my friends that are struggling this morning, that really don't care much about the things of you, God, would you so show them that there's a better way? And for those that are growing by your grace, I pray that this sermon would blow wind in their sails. And God, for you to accomplish these things, we're in need of you to move. And so by your spirit, would you use this sermon to do far more than we could ask or imagine? Make us more like Jesus, we pray, in his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 will be in verses 14 through 22. uh, Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. So if you go all the way to the end, 3 is the chapter. It's the larger number at the top. 14 through 22 are the smaller verse numbers. What we've said over the last few weeks is we've parachuted into two various, uh, two differing places throughout the scriptures is that the most important thing about us learning what a passage means is to rightly understand its context. And so to, to just give us a little bit of a backdrop to the letter of Revelation, the letter of Revelation is a book about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus. And in many ways, what Jesus does is he pulls back the curtain a little bit so that we are able to see this cosmic spiritual reality that's going on behind the scenes. And all the revelation that's contained in this letter, it's intended to both warn the church and to make the church strong in the face of suffering, to keep the church pure from that which seeks to lull her to sleep as it pertains to the things of God. In chapters 2 and 3, what we find is there are seven letters that Jesus writes and speaks to seven churches. These seven churches were regionally prominent churches in seven ancient major cities that really were along this route, uh, this trade route. We, in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, we're at the last of these letters, and it's unique in comparison to the other letters, because in every other letter, there's a a commendation. Jesus speaks a word of commendation to each of these churches, except when we get to this letter, 
to the church at Laodicea. There's not a commendation. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has helpfully summarized these letters and, and just a little description of them to maybe give us a little bit of an understanding. The first letter, the letter to Ephesus, DeYoung says, it's your loveless fundamentalist church. They're orthodox, they're hardworking, they're moral, but they've lost their first love. And so it's a letter about remembering and coming back to your first love. The second letter to Smyrna. He says, this is the persecuted 1040 window church. They're afflicted, they're slandered, they're impoverished. You would look at this church and you would think, ah, they don't have a lot. But they are spiritually rich. The third one, the letter to the church at Pergamum. This is the underground church. Uh, uh, the ungrounded church. They're passionate in their witness, but they're compromising in their ethics. So they think if we can just go and tell as many people as possible, then we're going to be doing something good all the while, not insisting on truth. The fourth letter, the church at Thyatira. This is the warm-hearted liberal church. They're strong in love and faith, but they undervalue doctrinal integrity. They were loving, but they were over-tolerant. The next letter, the church to Sardis, it was filled with people in the pews, but the people in the pews were nominal hypocrites. They had a great reputation, but they were dead on the inside. Whitewashed tombs. The sixth letter, the letter to the church at Philadelphia. This was a small church in a run-down part of the city. They felt weak, they felt unimpressive, but they had kept the word. They didn't deny the name of Jesus. They were a struggling church, but they were strong. Which brings us to this letter. Laodicea. This was your church who thinks that they have it all together. They're filled with affluence, and sadly, they're filled with apathy. There wasn't any heresy or outright idolatry. They were just a church that were full of those who really weren't excited about God. They were disinterested and bored with Him. And the absence of any encouragements to this church leads me to believe that perhaps this is the most dangerous condition of all. If you've grown up around the church, maybe you're familiar with this message that commends this type of attitude. I mean, love God a little bit, but don't go overboard. Don't be too fanatic. After a while, you're probably going to get it down. You're going to understand God. You're going to learn what it is that you're to do and not to do. Get enough of God to not be a worldly person, but don't sell out. And so what I want to do this morning is to consider what Jesus says to this apathetic church. Asking God to keep us from the same patterns. And so the first thing that we'll look at is the reality, number one, that spiritual apathy is a deadly problem. Spiritual apathy is a deadly problem. Look again at verses 14 through 16. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the amen, the faithful and the true witness. The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. As he's done with every other letter, he begins the letter with words that accentuate something about himself. And here Jesus describes his own authority and trustworthiness. And I believe these things were needed because of what it, what it was that he was about to say to this church concerning themselves. 
He begins by calling himself the amen. The only other time that word is used in this regard is Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16. And in that, he's just showing that the amen can be trusted. His word can be trusted. He then says he's the faithful and true witness. Revelation 1 makes clear that Jesus is the true witness who was slain for the sins of his people, showing the love of God. While these Laodiceans, their witness had become non-existent. But he was also the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus is the author of creation. He's the beginning of the new creation with his resurrection. And so after this sort of, this is who is speaking. I am the amen, I'm the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. We would almost expect that what he's going to say is he's going to commend this church who worships rightly in light of who Jesus is. But in fact, we find the, the exact opposite. In the midst of all of their activity, he says, I know your deeds. This wasn't a church that was not being faithful to perform deeds. They were going through motions. They were performing deeds. Deeds wasn't the problem. Disposition of heart was the problem. In the midst of all of their activity, there was a lack of zeal about the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most satisfying one. I mean, the way in which this condemnation comes right on the heels of Jesus saying, this is who I am, it makes the contrast even stark, uh, more stark. And this is why spiritual apathy is so deadly, because at its core, it's a failure to recognize and to respond to how wonderful God is. Do you understand that? That those periods of spiritual apathy in your life, they're not merely a reflection on your schedule. They're not merely a reflection on how tired you are. They're not merely a reflection on how how busy life is. They are a reflection on the sad reality that we are not enthralled most with the one who's most glorious. How in the world do we grow bored with God? How in the world do we grow disinterested in God? The problem with spiritual apathy is there is a glorious object of our worship. And somehow we've grown disinterested. And Jesus isn't contending that every issue or every topic or every facet of your life has equal amounts of zeal or passion. But he is saying that there is a great gap that exists between the worth and the wonder of Jesus and this church's lukewarm response. And spiritual apathy in your life reveals that same gap. The worth and the wonder of Jesus and a lukewarm response. And, and Jesus captures this really in language about hot, cold, lukewarm. And some people have understood Jesus to say, ah, you're not hot, like you're not on fire, fanatic, doing everything, nor are you cold, like you are not even a Christian. I would rather you be one of the two. No, Jesus isn't saying I'd rather you not be a Christian. Jesus is saying because you're lukewarm, you're really good for nothing. You're good for nothing being lukewarm. Cool water refreshes. Hot water heals. It soothes. But lukewarm water is gross. 
And for those of you that drink water without ice, what is wrong with you? Read Revelation 3. Geographically, I think there's something at play here as well. Because although Laodicea was this wealthy city, it had terrible water supply. And so what did it have to do? Well, the next closest city, a nearby town, was Hierapolis, and they were known for their hot springs. And so Laodicea would then make this aqueduct system, and they would try to transport the hot springs, the the warm waters, the hot waters of Hierapolis into the town. By the time it got to the town, guess what? It was lukewarm. It wasn't useful for anything. And the other nearby town, Colossae, was known for their cool springs. And so the same thing. They built aqueducts in order to get water to Laodicea. And by the time it got there, it was not cold. And so Jesus uses this picture of a geographical reality that this city would have known really well. By the time water got there, it wasn't useful for refreshing, and it wasn't useful for healing. And because of this, the water in many ways was rendered useless. And Jesus says, and because of your disinterest in the things of God, you too are rendered useless. And again, notice they weren't lazy. They weren't slothful. No, they were working. They were performing deeds, but the deeds were hollow. And so don't miss this. Your mindless good works are not a substitute for having your heart engaged with God. And this is why it would serve us all before we engage in any work for God is to beg Him, may our hearts be there with the work. Mindlessly, disinterestedly singing, praying, going through the motion throughout the day is not something that God thinks lightly of. When you've grown bored with God, you are in a serious predicament. And the reaction that Jesus has for those who routinely walk through the motions is a stark one. He will vomit them out of his mouth. No special Greek word unpacking needed here. We've all experienced or seen, smelled vomit. That's all I'm going to go. We're not going anywhere else. It's repulsive. It's just helpful for us to know that our disinterest in God and with the things of God repulses our Savior. And here's the sad thing, is that this church would have been largely unaware that Jesus felt this way. They thought they were okay. And maybe this morning we too may be largely unaware that our sustained disinterest for the things of God are not something that really is just a problem that you have because you don't want to share it in accountability. No, it's a problem you have because your Savior is repulsed by it. Passion for the things of God is to mark all Christians. I mean, just think about this. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And so let's just be clear. The Bible doesn't understand passion for the things of God to be a personality issue. Right? You, you can't say, well, I'm not passionate about the things of God because I'm an introvert. No, no, being passionate about the things of God is a Christian thing. And, and you can't say, I'm, 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 passionate. I'm not as passionate about the things of God because of my heritage. Right? You can't say, I'm Irish and we're just mad and so we don't get passionate about anything. No. The Bible understands passion to be a heart issue. I mean, that's the aim of the gospel. The aim of the gospel is to create a people who are passionate for doing good rather than just passionlessly trying to avoid evil. 
Titus 2, 14. Christ gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel produces people who are created for good works, Ephesians 2.10, and who have a reputation for good works, 1 Timothy 5.10, and who are rich in good works, 1 Timothy 6.18, and who are a model of good works, Titus 2.7, and who devote themselves to good works, Titus 3.8. And who stir one another up to good works, Hebrews 10, 24. The gospel does not make us lazy. The gospel makes us fervent, zealous. The gospel opens our eyes to the eternal realities all around us. And when that happens, nothing is merely ordinary anymore. To not be fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord is to be at some level indifferent to what he cares mostly about. And so in God's economy, fervency and zeal and passion are not really descriptors of how emotive we are. They really are gauges as to what it is that our heart is treasuring. God is more concerned about what truly enthralls us rather than what our outward responses are. Spiritual apathy is a matter of the heart. And so this morning, you and I would, serve, we would be served well to pay attention to what it is that we're apathetic about. Are you apathetic about the Lord? If so, understand it is a deadly problem. That leads us to the second thing. Number two, self-sufficiency is a leading cause of spiritual apathy. Self-sufficiency is a leading cause of spiritual apathy. We see this in verse 17. Look at the word of the Lord. Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. There are several paths that lead us to the place of spiritual apathy. Revelation 3 highlights one of those that gets you there really, really quickly, and that is self-sufficiency. And what this should clue us into is that spiritual apathy, spiritual apathy is the fruit. That's not your root problem. When you find that you're growing disinterested in the things of the Lord, That's not the root issue. That's the symptom. It's showing you that there's a disease buried further in. Just let the statement sink in what Jesus says, this church says. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more non-Christian statement than that. Like, I don't need anything. I have everything. The better we understand the cause of our apathy helps us realize why spiritual apathy is so deadly. And here's why, because lurking underneath your your spiritual apathy is the idea that you don't need help from God. Is that somehow God can't provide for you what you need. And that is a deadly thought. Just to say, God, I'm good, I don't need you. And it's this level of deception where people think that they don't need God is how people grow bored with God. If I don't think I need God, then I'm not going to keep going to God. And if I don't go to God, then I will grow bored with God. We could keep digging. What is it that leads this people to be self-sufficient? Well, the text tells us in part, it's their wealth. Wealth isn't a sin, 
But hoping in wealth is a sin. Being deceived by your wealth is a sin. And even this reminds us of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These believers, just like the people in Deuteronomy 8, this church in Laodicea, they were lulled to sleep by their wealth. <clears throat> and Jesus helps them. He responds to this assertion that they don't need anything by giving them a reminder of their true condition. He says, You are wretched, you're miserable, you're poor. You're blind and you're naked. I mean, he says, with all of your wealth and everything that you can buy, you're naked. With all of your money and all of your prosperity, you're wretched. With all of your bank accounts, you're really poor spiritually speaking. And it's almost like Jesus goes to the Laodicean saying, you want to fix the problem? If you want to fix the problem, then the first step is looking into this mirror for a moment. And Jesus says, because I want you to see you for who you really are. And if I could just speak for a moment Perhaps you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. I think the most important thing that you would be served to hear this morning is that God's word, this whole sermon, has been holding up a mirror for you to understand you, to really see you for who you are. In your current state, I mean, ever since Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of humanity and humanity's response to God's good rule and reign, humanity said, no, I don't want to live under that. I would much rather call the shots myself. And ever since then, humanity has been willfully rebelling against God, making this claim, I want to live on the throne. I want to live on the throne. And you're here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, that's what you are doing. You are refusing God's rule by continuing to insist to live on the throne. And that's not just a small problem. That is treason to the highest degree. A sin against God himself. And the sobering reality is that God will pour out his wrath because he's good and holy and just that sin will not go unpunished. And that's bad news for you unless there's a substitute who can do something for you that you can't do. And that's the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus becomes that substitute. 
He lives a perfect life that you and I fail to live. He gets to the end of that life and he dies a death on a cross, absorbing the wrath of God so that all who would turn from their sin and trust in his life and his death and his resurrection, they can be shielded from that wrath. And instead of knowing and experiencing the wrath of a holy God, they can know the embrace and the warm acceptance and forgiveness of a holy God. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, showing that there's not an enemy that you and I will face if we place our faith and trust in him that we can't conquer because of the work that he's done, even the enemy of death and sin. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I would just plead with you. Your, Your apathy about so many things in life, and particularly the things of God, is a warning sign, dashboard indicator that's meant to show you that something else is off and something greater is needed. And that something is that you are not in right relationship with God and that thing that is needed is the work of Jesus. And so maybe you've walked in caring nothing about that news, but you don't have to walk out the same way. By grace... Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Turn from your sin and trust in him alone. And if you have questions about that, or you think that you've recently done that, talk to any one of us. It would be the joy of the church then to come alongside and walk with you as you seek to begin to understand more fully what it looks like to belong to the king. Not as as one who's fearful of his judgment, but as one who has been adopted as his child. In this reality is what this church had been missing. They lost sight of eternity. They began thinking that this world was their home and that everything within it was what they needed and they thought that they were doing quite well. And that's the problem when relying on earthly riches is earthly riches oftentimes blind us to spiritual poverty. Why in the world would this people pray? They had everything. They didn't think they had need of anything. And the same reality can be true of us. As wealthy as these Laodiceans were in relation to the rest of the world, us, compared to everyone else in the world, we're probably even wealthier. And what that means is that every one of us is in a dangerous place. We're in a dangerous place to subtly grow self-sufficient and to think that we don't need God. I mean, it can be pretty easy for us to go throughout our day and not pray much. And it may take the loss of a job or health or relationship before we're jarred back into the reality that, no, 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 we're not a self-sufficient people. And so it would serve us well to labor extra hard to ensure that we see ourselves rightly. And this is where the gift of a local church shines bright. The local church helps you see yourself rightly. The local church holds up the scriptures to ensure that that's the mirror that we're comparing ourselves to and that we're understanding that we are exiles and sojourners. The local church is where we hear the preaching of the word so that we have something outside of ourselves to show us what it is that is true whenever our senses begin to grow dulled because of our riches and prosperity. We need brothers and sisters who will gather around us in small groups and remind us of our needs and to pray for us and to walk alongside us and to fight for our spiritual growth. We need all of this because this world is not a safe place. And so as with Laodicea, so here... We need to hear this warning that riches and wealth can serve as a devastating hurdle to faithful Christian living, oftentimes blinding us to our desperate need for Christ. And then lastly, the grace of Jesus is greater than your apathy. The grace of Jesus is greater than your apathy. We see this in verses 18 through 22. Listen to what Jesus says. I advise you to buy from me 
gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see what Jesus does here? Jesus tells this wealthy people who think they have need for nothing. He sends them on a shopping spree. And do you see where he tells them to go shop? Jesus says, come and buy from me. Come and buy from me. I counsel you to buy gold from me so that you might be rich. White garments so that your shame and your nakedness would be covered. I salve so that you might be able to see. Jesus is reminding them that they're settling for gold that they have in their bank accounts in the city when they can have riches that aren't temporary. They're settling for black sheep wool to clothe themselves when they can be clothed with the white garments that will cover the saints in all of eternity. They're settling for eye salve that they can get at the medical school They can get debris out of their eye while Jesus is offering to take their blindness and to give them sight. Here's the thing. You may look at this church and you may think, oh, they're ambitious. They're overly ambitious. And Jesus would say, no, 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 you're not ambitious enough. They're settling for lesser things that their city offers rather than the greater things that Jesus offers. And this marketplace analogy if you're familiar with the Old Testament, maybe you've, you, in hearing this, you thought, wait a minute, Isaiah chapter 55, <clears throat> God goes to Israel and he makes a plea for them to come to him. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for, that, for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. What the Lord says in Isaiah 55 is that you're settling for lesser things. They're settling for food that can't satisfy when all the while he has that which is going to nourish them forever. And I think the same thing is being said in Revelation 3.18. And they thought they were in the seat of prestige and power because of how wealthy and how mighty their city was. And yet Jesus offers them to come sit with him on his throne, verse 21. They were settling for so much less than that which Jesus offers. And spiritual apathy is an indicator that we too are settling for so much less than what Jesus offers. This is one of the greatest temptations in this world. We have so much that's available to us and we have and we can easily pursue more riches and more things. I mean, throughout history, people have only dreamt about pursuing the type of things that we get to enjoy. We live in lush houses, travel the world, eat the nicest of foods. We can pursue leisurely activities. We pursue lusts more easily and less publicly shameful than any other time in history. And Jesus is saying, don't settle for any of that. He wants to offer greater riches, truer rest, and deeper, more lasting pleasure. And so let's be a people who make intentional choices to pour out whatever riches we have now into his kingdom 
and begin to fight against boredom with him by leveraging what he's given us to grow excited about the things of his kingdom. Let us see the temptation to settle for lesser things and to turn to the greater lasting treasures in Jesus. And I believe Jesus understands that his words are harsh. I mean, being told that you're useless is tough to hear. I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying that to to us? And yet Jesus quickly affirms in verse 19 that he's acting out of love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and and repent. Jesus is saying, I wouldn't be saying this to you if I didn't love you. But I want more for you. Therefore, stop settling and turn to me. We usually don't reflect on someone's love for us by reflecting on their discipline. I mean, when I talk to my daughters and just say, how, how do you know dad loves you? I just don't ever hear. I remember a few precious spankings I received. <laughs> Father. But Jesus wants us to know that his discipline is a sign of his love. If Jesus did not love you, he would not care if you remained blind and poor. He wouldn't care if you were pursuing a hell-bound eternity. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't be fighting to help you seek those things that are lasting. So this morning, if you're feeling a, a level of conviction around what you're hearing... Thank the Lord for that. That's, a, that's an act of love and mercy and grace. And heed his command to repent, turn from living for what it is that you're living for. And trust and rest in him. Get a renewed, fresh, deep, profound vision of the greatness of Christ. Taste of him. Be with him. Spend time with him. Learn about him. Pursue a relationship with him. Capture afresh his greatness and his grandeur and his glory. And realize then that everything else in this world is rubbish and but crumbs compared to the feast that is Christ. The picture in verse 20 is stunning, right? We've heard Jesus standing at the door knocking is like the evangelism verse. And, And while I'm sure there's some application we can make there, it's just helpful to know that this is not a verse about Jesus standing at the door wanting people that aren't Christians to let him in. No, Jesus desires fellowship with his church. I mean, this is a picture of a bridegroom who is hell-bent on pursuing his bride. And so what does he do? He is rapping at the door. Why? Because he longs to dine with his bride. He wants to feast with his bride. Because the best thing about belonging to him is not merely forgiveness of sins, but it's fellowship with him. And it's that type of fellowship that we jeopardize in remaining in our spiritual apathy. So you're here this morning and you're apathetic about the things of God. That is a deadly problem. Understand that it's a symptom of something greater And understand that there's a grace that can help you overcome your apathy. All throughout church history, as the people of God have been aware of their sin and been reminded of what Christ has done, there's been this desire for how in the world do I then renew my commitment? How do, I, how do I keep experiencing the ongoing fellowship of just sitting with my Savior and dining with Him? Well, it's not every time there's an altar call to come forward. No. God in great grace and kindness has says there is a meal that God's people share together. And what that does is it highlights the fellowship that exists between God and His church. 
that ongoing response of God's people in celebrating and remembering their unity, belonging to God, is to regularly partake of the Lord's Supper when the church comes together. And just to be clear, the Lord's Supper is not for those who have yet to turn from their sin and to place their faith and trust in Jesus. This isn't a meal that you take in order to hope somehow that uh, it, it activates something, that you earn something with this meal. No, this meal is for those who have already done something and have received something. It's a feasting upon. Because at the table, we're called to sit with him, to commemorate his sacrifice. And we do that with other brothers and sisters who have done the same. And so this morning, I'm going to pray. Music's going to begin to play. And as the music plays, I'm just asking you, begin to come forward. And as you're waiting in line or when you go back to your seat, just take time to prepare yourself. Examine your heart. Are you apathetic about the things of God? And if you are, then the question is, are you willing to give it up? Are there other sins in your life that you would say, man, I don't know if I can go and take the supper because I am actively sinning here. The supper is not for people that are perfect. No, the supper is for people that recognize that they're not perfect. They're in need of a Savior. But coming and taking the supper is us saying, I am willing to give it up. I will forsake my sin because Christ is better. And you may not even know how you're going to forsake it, but you're willing to forsake it. Then we would invite you to come. And after partaking, quickly go to another brother or sister and say, hey, I need help. I need help forsaking my sin. That's the gift of the church. And I believe God will strengthen your faith through this ordinance as we take and eat and take and drink. And so the Lord's Supper at Covenant Life is open to baptize believers. who are members in good standing of a church who preaches the true gospel, that man can only be made right with God by faith in the work of Jesus, not by any works of their own. And understanding that that work is his sinless life, his death on the cross as our substitute and his resurrection. And so baptized believers who are members in good standing, and, and that is a protection of your soul because it's not merely individuals who get to proclaim, yes, I belong to God. No, it's the church's responsibility to say, yeah, we affirm that profession. But also those then who are walking in repentance of sin and reconciliation with others. And so to these, this table is open. And the Lord invites you to come and to sit with him and to feast and to eat and to be reminded of his goodness and his grace and to be reminded that his grace is greater than all of your sin. Let's pray.